we live in a time uh, where there's a lot of opportunity and options that are available to us because of technology and different things, but we're also living in a time in which people are looking for ways to escape pain. We're looking for ways to escape hardship and trials in our lives, and especially these younger, the younger generations have really n- never gone through some of the things that the older generations that are in here have gone through or, ha- or have had to experience those things like, uh, you know, the Great Depression and other... It, ways that, you know, life has just hit you so hard, a loss of a child, a loss of a spouse. There's so many different ways that we experience pain, and oftentimes we, uh, and rather than embracing our pain or looking for ways that God's going to use that pain, uh, we try to numb ourselves, we try to avoid it, we try to run from it, uh, we do everything but really face it head on, but yet it's, reality is it's still there, and what I shared with you last week a statement that said that what we fail to repair, we repeat. In other words, if I experience something very painful in my life, I started out, you know, those of you know my story, some of you don't. Uh, My parents divorced when I was very young. Uh, My father just left our family. My mother raised five kids, and that was a very painful event for me as a child and growing up without a father in the house. And So I did not deal adequately with that pain, and I just stuffed it, and I just numbed myself to it, and I I looked for a way to escape it, to cope with it. So my choice was drugs, alcohol, work. I immersed myself into work just to try to just not have to think about things or not feel anything. But over time, um, those hurts that are unresolved, they just build on one another. So I was hurt that way. I was hurt in other ways that people said to me or did to me, and when you start compounding hurt, and you've got all this unresolved anger built up deep within you, you always walk on the scale of one to ten, you're always pegged on a nine, and it doesn't take much to shove you over the top, and so I had anger issues. What, wonder why I had anger issues? Well, because I was always walking on number nine, right? It didn't take much to shove me over the top, and I'm just going to unleash all of that pent-up, built-up anger that I refuse to deal with. I learned how to manage my anger sometimes, but I never got to the root cause of it, and that's where healing needed to take place. And that's really what this whole process of brokenness is all about. God breaks us to give us breakthrough for us to experience his blessing on the other side of that. And so when we fail to repair, we repeat it, and over time, your body keeps score, right? So I was a psychology major in college, and, and uh, psychosomatic illnesses are very real illnesses. People are physically having ailments that send them to the hospital, but the root cause of those ailments are not really physical. The root cause is emotional. It's mental. Because there is unresolved pain deep down within you. God created you spirit, soul, and body in one essence, like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit's not three separate gods, it's one God and one essence. Your soul is so deeply tied to your body, if you are carrying hurt and bitterness and jealousy and envy and unforgiveness around you, your body will keep score. It will create all kinds of physical ailments, and even the uh, medical field is willing to acknowledge that. And so it's so, so important that rather than allowing things to just build on top of one another, we learn how to confront, we learn how to embrace 
This is what freedom is all about that you sang about. God wants to set you free from those painful events, those painful memories, whatever they might be for you, so that you walk in the freedom of them rather than staying attached to your past where that hurt took place. You're always chained there. You're allowing other people who hurt you years ago still continue in this day to control you because of the memories that you have concerning that event or whatever it is that might have been said to you. And so, as we said last week, brokenness addresses three issues in, in your life. One is the deceitfulness of sin, because sin is very deceitful. Whenever we move outside of God's original design, it always creates sin, and sin leads to brokenness and brokenness to coping mechanisms. We try to figure out how we're going to manage our lives. We live in a broken world. This world is broken physically because sin entered into its existence. We as human beings are broken individuals. We carry around brokenness within us. And what God wants to do is allow his Holy Spirit to go down to the root of that brokenness that might be the root cause of your depression. It might be the root cause of your anxiety. It might be the root cause of your unforgiveness. Shine his light and enable you to see the truth, because I'm telling you, that is rooted in lie-based thinking that now your emotions have attached to, and you've built a conviction on those emotions that now think the lies are truth, and therefore you respond as though what you're doing, how you're thinking, how you're feeling is the truth, when in fact it is not the truth. It is all rooted in lies, in your brokenness, and then they're coupled on top of that is the selfishness of our, our own, or the deceitfulness of our own hearts. Remember last week we looked at Paul, he says you can live one of two ways, either driven by the spirit or driven by the flesh. The flesh is a life that is driven by your impulses, your emotions. Your emotions are in the driver's seat of your life. God never intended for your emotions to be in the driver's seat of your life. He intended for us to live by his voice, not by our feelings. But feelings are real. And feelings are often manufactured on the basis of the way we're thinking. So if we are thinking incorrectly, we are feeling incorrectly, which makes us make the incorrect decisions in life, right? Because your mind, will, and emotions, that's your soul. That's the essence of your, your psychological being. And so, for example, let's say if you're a young lady and you're growing up and you never felt comfortable about your body, there's body shaming uh, it goes through advertisements, so young ladies today, they get on Facebook, and you know, you're told your body has to look a certain way, and you see all kinds of pictures, and you say, well, but my body doesn't look that way, and then you feel bad about yourself, and Satan comes along and says, that's right, you ought to feel bad about yourself, because here's the problem, and he just starts condemning you, and hounding you, and berating you, you're not pretty enough, you're not good enough, you'll never mount anything, all these kinds of thought processes that go through our minds that we t attach ourselves to, that affect our emotions, and then it doesn't matter how well you look, it's never enough. It's never good enough. It's never, you know, pretty enough. I mean, there are, you know, drop-dead gorgeous models. If you've read some of their, their testimonies, they talk about, well, yeah, but my neck's too long or my cheekbones aren't right. I mean, there's always flaws that they're picking out about themselves. So this is true for all of us. And so Satan, remember, counterfeits everything that God creates. For example, you want to know why there's gender confusion? And you ever wonder why all of a sudden people are confused about their gender? Now we've got 83 different genders. 
Um, I can almost assure you that their gender confusion is rooted in a pain that lie-based thinking has been developed, that they now have accepted as truth, and they have built a conviction around that truth, which is actually lies, that has confused them about their gender. Somebody asked me, has Jesus talked about this? Well, he hasn't talked about it specifically, but every time Jesus has asked the question about these kinds of things, like marriage or whatever, he always goes back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created male and female, and on he goes. He says, this is God's original design. Anything outside of this original design is sin. Sin always leads to brokenness, which always leads to coping mechanisms. And so people are trying to cope with their brokenness by trying to figure out who they are. I can assure you that when you die and your, your body is buried, you can come back 100 years from now, dig up your bones, and you will know whether or not it was a male or female. Because your DNA is encrypted in, in you, the XY chromosomes and XX chromosomes. And so I'm not saying that people don't have a legitimate um, problem or difficulty in their minds trying to figure this out. I'm just saying that what God creates, Satan counterfeits, it is an attack upon the identity that God has given to us to keep us in confusion so we're never satisfied with who we are. We know that many people who go through the sex change operations oftentimes commit suicide because they're still not happy, they're still not satisfied, which is why John Hopkins a long time ago stopped doing it because the suicide rate became so, so high. So that's just one area, that's a topic for another day. There's the depth of our pain, right? If you write your life story, the good, bad, and the ugly, uh, some of you in, in your life story that you may write to us for we could read, uh, maybe you were saved as a, a young child, maybe you grew up in a Christian home, uh, your parent led you to the Lord, or maybe you went to vacation Bible school, and there you made a decision for Christ and started following Jesus early on in your life. So for some of you who are like me, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, uh, I was later in life before I came to faith in Christ, and whether you were saved early or later, we still all, if we write our story, we have a lot of painful events, a lot of things that have happened to us, a lot of things that we struggle with, a lot of areas in our lives in which we are broken. The problem is sometimes is that we just continue that, that process over and over again, year in and year out, and nothing changes. And then we begin to doubt the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power to save, heal, and deliver. And so as we sang this last song about God's miracles, God does still do miracles. God has the power to do miracles, and the gospel is the power source of God through his son, Jesus Christ, who can change how we see our lives and how we are being driven by what we are rooted in that is creating um, this distress in our lives. Because the deceitfulness of our hearts plays into this. Remember, there's a difference between your heart being dishonest and being deceitful. Dishonesty, I can recognize that. Deceit, I don't recognize it. And so Satan is so clever and so deceptive. And that's why Paul wrote to us and said, hey, don't allow the evil one to deceive you. You need to know how he operates so that you can then know how to war against him so that God can bring brokenness that leads to breakthrough, that leads to God's blessing, God does want to bring healing in the depth of your soul, which is what 
sanctification or growing in Christ is all about. He wants us to be able to throw those things off. Taking off the old, as Paul would say in his writings. Let's take off the old, let's put on the new. You're a new creation in Christ. All things, look, the old things are gone. The new has come. I'm not fighting for the new. I'm just simply learning how to leverage the new on my behalf because that's what Jesus has supplied for us. So here's the first principle for this morning is this. God may choose shorter pain in your life for a longer, longer-term gain. In other words, you're going to experience pain and difficulties and problems in life whether God was involved or not, okay? That's just what life brings when you live in a broken world among broken people. People hurt people. In fact, I would dare say that much of the pain that you've experienced up to this point in your life has come at the hands of somebody else. It's not that you asked for it. It's not that it was warranted. You didn't do anything, but it was done to you. And so some of you have in your story some very deep and some very painful things. And so we have behavior patterns and thought patterns that we need to undo, that we need to dismantle, that have become automatic. They are our default mechanism. Remember, about five, six years ago, we did a, a whole series on toxic thinking, and I asked you the question to fill out a card. Hey, when you think about yourself, what are the thoughts that come across your mind? And you filled out those cards and gave them back to me. They were horrible, right? We had horrible thoughts about ourselves. I'm fat. I'm ugly. I'm unlovable. Nobody cares about me. I'm invisible. I mean, just on and on and on we went. And this, this is the real that's going round and round in your mind. And the way you think affects the way you feel, which ultimately affects the way you act. Your life is always moving in the direction of your most dominant thinking. So Paul comes along and says, hey, Let's offer up our bodies as living sacrifices to God, holy and pleasing in Him. Let's no longer allow our minds to be patterned by the world, but let's see our minds transformed and renewed through the Word of God so that we can understand what God's will is, His perfect and pleasing will. Well, I can tell you His perfect and pleasing will is to bring healing where there is hurt. God wants to set us free, and there's a process by which he takes us through this. So we're going to look at that this morning. Every person who was used in the Bible in any significant way in the kingdom of God went through this process of brokenness. You think about Moses. Everybody heard of, you know, Charlton Heston? Moses is, you know, he grew up in the Pharaoh's house for 40 years. He decides he's going to set his people free when he comes to the realization that he is a Hebrew. And so, what does he do? He ultimately, he kills one of the Egyptians. He is now a murderer. He is found out. He has to flee Egypt. So, what does God do? God takes him on the backside of a desert, watching his father-in-law's sheep for 40 stinking years. That's a long time. 40 years. I'm only 40 years old. That's a long time. What was God doing? He was breaking Moses. He was, he was molding and shaping his life, much like with David when he was a shepherd in his youth before he ever became king over Israel. He was a shepherd. He, God taught him much. And so Moses was broken, and he, he experienced this breakthrough, and the blessing was 
God raised him up to go back into Egypt and to deliver Israel from their bondage and enslavement to Egypt. And for 40 years, of course, I don't know if it was a blessing or not, for 40 years he had to take these people around, wandering around circles for 40 years, uh, wanting to go into the promised land, but couldn't because of their, their people's unbelief. That's, that's another story. Or think about um, Jacob. Jacob was um, wrestling with God. God touches the socket of his thigh. He walks with a limp for the rest of his life, and he changed his name from Jacob, which, which meant deceiver, to Israel with one who fights with God. So the reason why God changed his name is because he's changing his character. So Jacob, who fought with God, who surrendered totally to the Lord, now the Lord had the ability to fight for him. And that's exactly what happened. Now think about young Joseph. God gave him this dream of, of, of you know, what was going to happen in his life. And then his brothers find out about it. They hated him. They send it, you know, sell him off into uh, a, a caravan that leads him to slavery in Egypt. He's in Potiphar's household. And he's falsely accused by his wife of sexual impropriety. And he's put in prison. And so God has him through this breaking process. For 13 years he's in prison and, and for something he never even did. But what did God do through that brokenness? He brought breakthrough, made him second in command over the entire Egypt, only to Pharaoh himself, who, by the way, is considered a god in Egypt, so that he could save his family from starvation, from a famine that would be coming in seven years. Now you look at Peter, and we're going to focus on Peter today, who went into the fishing business after he betrayed Christ, right? He denied Jesus three times, and Jesus is crucified, he's put in the tomb. Peter thinks, well, it's over with, it's all done, we're going back to the fishing business. That's exactly what he did. Jesus is resurrected, and Jesus meets Peter where? He meets him on the shore of the Lake of Galilee, and he sets up a fire. He sets up the exact same scenario in which Peter has denied Christ three times in the uh, courtyard of Caiaphas, and so Peter comes and he sees Jesus, and how do you think Peter felt? Because the last time he saw Jesus is when he denied him the third time, and he locked eyes with Jesus as he was being taken off for another sham trial. Probably felt pretty guilty, right? And so Jesus reinstates him. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, what about Paul? Paul hated Christians. He was the persecutor of the church. He has this tre tremendous experience with God on the road to Damascus. And God blinds him for several days. I mean, puts him in blindness. And he, he is broken before the Lord. And he has a breakthrough that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, the, the true Holy One of God. And he embraces Christ to be Savior and Lord of his life. And God then uses him to reach out to the Gentiles and to establish churches and to write much of the New Testament in which we have in front of us called the Bible. And even though Paul went through shipwrecks and beatings and left for dead and the thorn in the flesh, he prayed three times that God would remove the thorn. And God said, oh, no, 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 You're gonna, I'm going to let the thorn stay because in your weakness is when the strength of Christ begins to shine forth in a greater and more powerful way. So all that to point out is simply this, the process of brokenness is God is bringing to us a place of breakthrough and a place of blessing, but 
whoever is broken, you never are the same. Let's say this is brokenness, this is breakthrough. On this side, you're never, ever the same. You're absolutely transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Your life has been changed forever in that area of your life. And that opens the door for God to do some incredible things through you, not just in you, but through you, as you leverage that brokenness for kingdom purposes. And so the purpose of brokenness is not to break your spirit. Uh, God can't use you in supernatural ministry if he's breaking your spirit. The purpose is to bring us in alignment with his will so that when the Father speaks, we don't argue, we don't rationalize, we don't make excuses. We come to the point where we say, okay, Lord, I'm surrendering myself fully to you. I don't understand this. Uh, it might be it's creating a lot of fear and anxiety in you. I don't know if I can take this initial step of faith, but I'm going to do so anyway on the basis of who you are and what you're asking me to do. And so that's the process of brokenness. It's the purpose of why God is... God is teaching us and changing us so that we don't resist and we don't live deceptively. So how does God do that? Well, number one is God targets the area of your life that he knows that you need to experience brokenness. He's going to target an area of your life. I didn't say he's going to target 15 areas. God doesn't operate that way. He's going to target an area but he's going to go down the list. We're going to look at Peter. I'm going to give you five of them in Peter's life. There's more than that. There are five areas that God targeted in his life. Why? Because Peter needed to be the person Jesus needed. Because when Jesus ascended back into heaven, he was going to need Peter to be one of the key leaders in the church. But Peter was in no way ready for that responsibility. There are some things that Jesus needed to break him of. And so we love Peter because Peter is just, you know, one of those guys that's just like uh, always making mistakes, right? He was, um, he was a fisherman when Jesus met him. He was impulsive. He was strong-willed. He was probably physically robust. He was outspoken. But he was so self-centered. I mean, everything revolved around him. He always had the better idea. And it always needed to be done his way. And so Peter was, um, he was just one of those guys that was just constantly, every time Jesus would say something was going to happen, Peter would say, uh-uh, no, 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 Lord, uh, we're, we're not letting that happen. <laughs> I got a better idea. You ever worked around somebody like that? They always had a better idea? Right? <laughs> right? So when I was uh, in high school, you know, I was, I was um, working for a plumbing contractor, and I was going to apprenticeship school. And so um, during the day, I, I only had two classes my senior year I had to take, so I only, I only went for an hour a day. And so I go an hour. And so I was assigned to one of the plumbers who worked for Odie Holler and Son at the time in Newark. And his, they called him Doc. Doc was a master plumber. He wasn't just a plumber. He was a master plumber, which means he had mastered his craft. He had, a, you know, he had credentials beyond just a normal. And so... I was his right-hand man because Doc was older. And, of course, you know, to an 18-year-old, everybody looks old. But uh, he may have been 40, I don't know. But he looked to me like he's ancient. He needed help. So, you know, I was a little young and cocky. And um, 
sign me to him, and, you know, and so I would say, you know, he'd say, do this, this, and he'd show me really the, the trade and uh, how to do it effectively, and we did steam and hot water heating systems in, in addition to plumbing, and, and so we were at the Granville Inn, uh, and we were working on their steam uh, heating system, and he's telling me what to do, and I looked at him and said, Doc, you know, I think I got a better way we could do this. <laughs> After about the third time of that, what, what do you think he responded? I'm really not interested in your ideas. I'm really not interested in what you think is better. This is the way we're going to do it. This is the way you need to do it. This is the way we're going to do it. And so, um, you know, I, I got put in my place. And this is kind of like Peter. Sometimes Jesus had to put him in his place in order to get through to him. Uh, there were several areas that needed to be broken and remade and refashioned. And so God was always targeting these areas in uh, Peter's life. So let's look at uh, these five areas. Number one, uh, and you can go to Matthew 14 if you want to follow along. I'm just going to kind of give you the, the scenario of these passages for the sake of time. You find this in Matthew 14. So uh, this is the issue of fear. And so Jesus has sent his disciples into a boat, and he sends them out across the Sea of Galilee. And of course, the Sea of Galilee uh, was known for its uh, storms that would come up very rapidly, very quickly. And so they're out in the middle, of the, uh, you know, and the wind's going, and the storms are going. Jesus has been back here praying, and he comes walking on water, and they see him. The disciples see him, but, you know, with the wind and the waves uh, and the rain, they think it's a ghost. Right, So they're fearful, they think it's a ghost, like there's a ghost out here. And so when they finally realize it's Jesus, you'll recall Peter said what? Lord, can I come out there with you? And Jesus is like, put on your big pants, boy, and just come on out here, right? You, we're going to have a good time. So Peter jumps out of the boat, and he's just walking along the water. And then all of a sudden, it says very distinctly that he took his eyes off of Christ and put them on the wind and the rain and this, you know, the, the, the veracity of the storm and fear entered into his heart. And because of his fear, he began to sink. And of course, Jesus reaches out and takes his hand and escorts him into the boat. And he asks Peter, he says, man, why are you so afraid? Where is your faith? So one of the things Jesus knew about Peter is that Peter was a really intense guy, man. He's like a type A personality. He is a lion. He is a leader. And lion leaders, I mean, they're just intense. And so he could be intensely fearful and intensely faith-driven. But what Jesus knew is that he had the ability to go both ways, right? That was his, that was his default mechanism. So Jesus knew, I've got to root this fear out of him because I need him to be one of the leaders in the early church. He was a part of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And so when Jesus, again, was resurrected, and when he ascended, Peter was like the leader. And you remember on the day of Pentecost, he preaches over 3,000 people get saved in that one setting. So he's going to be a leader in the church, but he's not ready yet. God's preparing him for his calling and therefore, he's got to root out this fear-driven life and replace it with a faith-driven life because Peter's going to have to have a lot of faith if he's going to lead this new movement that is going to storm the very Roman Empire called the Church of Jesus Christ. So that's what he's in the process of doing. Is he's, he's going to 
He's going to break it, man. It's fear versus faith. I mean, I don't know about you. I love the Indiana Jones movies, and um, I used to watch them all the time, and I haven't seen them for, for a long, long time. But one of the movies is Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail, and he is, his father's been shot. He's got to get over here to get the Holy Grail, to get the holy water that would bring healing to his dad. And he comes across this great big chasm, and, and he's got to get to the other side of it, but there's like, there's no bridge, right? It's just like empty. He can only see the other side, but he has a book that his father had, had written, you know, drawn all these figures, and it's called the, the Leap of Faith. And so the leap of faith is you got to step out and step out into the nothingness in order for you to be caught, right? For you to land on something solid. And so Indiana Jones has a choice. Am I going to be fear-driven or faith-driven? Well, if I step out and I go like this and put my weight down and nothing holds me up, I'm, I'm plummeting to my death. But according to my dad's drawing, that's not going to happen. So he took the leap of faith, the step of faith, and come to realize there is this invisible bridge. So he took like sand and threw it across it, and you could see it. Now, from the camera angle, you could see the bridge, but he couldn't see it until he took that step of faith. And oftentimes, God asks us to take steps of faith, but we want the assurance that everything's going to work out the way we want it to in my timeline and the way I want it. Otherwise, if I don't have the whole shebang, if you don't lay it all out, give me the entire blueprint, Lord, I'm sorry, but I can't do it. I can't take that step of faith. Why? Because fear is driving me. Fear is pushing my emotions. But oftentimes when we walk with God, it is a walk of faith. And faith is always confronted by fear, but faith is the courage to move forward in spite of your fear. It's a time to reset and recalibrate. And this is why Peter is broken of his fear. Do you know that Peter dies as a martyr? He could have recanted his faith in Christ and lived, but he died as a martyr in the end because he was no longer driven by fear but by faith. Here's the second thing is self-sufficiency or control. We don't know, nobody here has control issues, right? Jesus explained to Peter in Matthew 16 uh, that he was going to go to Jerusalem and he would be handed over to the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law and, and they were going to, you know, they've manufactured a way to get him killed, but on the third day he would be raised to life. And Peter took Jesus aside and he rebuked him. <laughs> this is down verse, uh, chap chapter 16, verse um, 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, you know it's going to be a bad day if Jesus calls you Satan, right? It's going to be a bad day for Peter. And he says, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the what? The things of, of men. And so the last thing Peter wanted to do was to give Jesus control. Like, uh, no, Jesus, I, I got a better way. I'm not going to let this happen. Uh, you know, I, I, will, I will lay down my life for you. I'm telling you, uh, this is not the way this needs to happen. He wanted to dictate whether or not, you know, his feet would be washed. And Jesus had, to, you know, the Passover meal with his disciples. 
Remember, Jesus knelt down, and he's washing the disciples' feet. He gets to Peter, and Peter goes, no, Lord, you're not washing my feet. What did Jesus say? Well, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part with me. See, Peter was always um, confronting Jesus and trying to control what Jesus was doing and what Jesus was trying to accomplish. He always, watch this, he always had to have the final word. Now, our youngest daughter was that way, right? So when she was a teenager and she was in trouble over something, she always had to have the last word, which got her in more trouble than what she was in trouble for initially. If she would have just stopped talking about, you know, two paragraphs ago, it would have been all finished and done and over with. But no, she just kept mouthing and mouthing and mouthing more and more, always had to have the last. This was Peter with Jesus. And so... Brokenness was God's process of bringing us to the point where we don't have the final say except, Lord, um, what would you have me do? It took Peter three years to get to the point that he would fully surrender to God's will, to God's way, whatever God said, without arguing, without manipulating, without coming up with an excuse, It took three years to get him to that point in his life. It took a lot of brokenness. He says, yes, Lord, I'll I'll be what you want me, I'll do what you want me to do. And it's Peter who wrote these words in his his letter, 1 Peter, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Where did Peter learn that? (laughs) Through brokenness, right? Through brokenness. Number three is self-righteousness. Matthew 18, Peter asks Jesus. Jesus has just been talking about um, people sinning against you and hurting you and how you need to forgive. And Peter looks at Jesus, hey, hey, Jesus, if somebody's hurting me, how many times do I have to forgive them? Seven times? Now, according to the teaching rabbis of that day and time, it was three times. So Peter's thinking, like, I'm being really generous here. Like, I'm going above and beyond. I'm really showing some grace to this guy. And Jesus says, no, 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 not seven times, but 70 times seven. In other words, there is no infinite number here. It is always, you should always be in the forgiving mode. Now, why is this going to be important for Peter? Because remember, Peter had a hot temper and uh, was very... um, lionistic, like, you know, like he was just like a bulldozer, and sometimes he rubbed people, people the wrong way, and uh, he was just not a forgiving guy, but he's going to need to be a forgiving guy, because if he's going to pastor the church, if he's going to be a leader over this new movement of God, he has to lead out of a heart of humility, not out of a heart of anger and, and, and resentment and bitterness, and so Jesus then uh, breaks into this parable about a guy who owed the king an enormous amount of money, couldn't pay it back. The king forgave him of his debt. He leaves the king's chambers, finds a buddy of his who owes him just a fraction of what he owed the king, and he says, pay me now. The guy says, I can't, has him thrown in jail. The king finds out about it and summons the guy back in there and says, hey, I forgave you of a debt you couldn't possibly pay, and you go to your friend who owes you barely anything in comparison, and you have him thrown in jail. The king was ticked. And this is the the point of the parable was that, listen, we need to forgive. 
forgiveness, watch this, forgiveness is going to be, and we'll talk about this in a couple weeks, a very key element in your recovery from brokenness. Huge. Mammoth. I don't know of a marriage in which there will not be a thousand times that you're going to have to forgive one another through the course of your marriage if it's going to last. Nothing builds resentment and anger and hatred and bitterness quicker. And really, unforgiveness is just a sign that all of that's already inside of you. And nothing ties you to your past and holds you there quicker than unforgiveness. Because unforgiveness begins to develop what I call a spirit of offense, where you're just offended by everything and everyone. Right? And so there's something going on in deeper than that. And if you don't release that, watch it, if you don't release somebody through forgiveness, remember, the purpose of forgiveness is not, you know, you, well, they didn't apologize to me and they didn't this. The purpose of forgiveness is not what's going on with them, it's what's going on with you. Because if you don't release that person through forgiveness, you will, you will bleed all over people who never cut you. You can't harbor that kind of toxic emotion without it bleeding all over everybody around you in every relationship you have. You're not that good to compartmentalize, well, I'll only be really nasty to that person, but I won't be nasty to this person over here. Have you ever been around a person who's just like really angry, and you know they're angry, and you ask them, what are you so angry at? I'm not angry about anything. Well, you might want to let your face know and your tone of voice because I think you're pretty angry. I can assure you there's a root issue going on that's unresolved, and I'll guarantee you almost entirely it revolves around unforgiveness. Number four is pride. John 13, again, Jesus attempts to wash Peter's feet, and he says, no, I'm not going to let you do that. But in Matthew chapter 26, um, Jesus is with his disciples, and he says to, to um, Peter, hey, uh, this night uh, you're going to fall from me. You're going to fall away from me, and uh, I'm the shepherd. I'm, be, I'm going to be struck, and I'm, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to be buried, and you're going to all going to scatter, right, to the four winds. Peter says, no, 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 Lord, not me. I will never do that. In fact, Lord, I will die for you. I'll go to prison for you before that happens. Remember what Jesus said to Peter in the Passover meal? He said, hey, Peter. Satan's asked permission from me to sift you like wheat. I'm praying for you that you will not fail. But after you've come back, did you catch that? I'm praying you don't fail, but after you turn back, what's in between? Peter, you're going to fail, right? <laughs> you're not going to make it, dude. You're just not going to make it. You ain't got that much fortitude. And so this is, this is where Peter was. No, Lord, I, I, I will never, all these other guys, yeah, they made a wimp out on you, but not me. And so Peter does, right? So Peter denies Christ three times, as I mentioned. And so Peter whips bet, bitterly. I mean, he's crying. He is broken. He is absolutely crushed that he has turned his back upon Jesus, his Messiah. And so um, Jesus, Jesus broke Peter's pride through this, this period of brokenness. Peter had a lot of pride in him. He didn't have any pride after that day. 
He was broken, and he was broken hard. You know that a lot of marital strife uh, happens between husbands and wives is pride-driven. You know how many people I counsel, couples I counsel, and the wife's saying, well, you know, Pastor, if you just get my husband straightened up, all things would be well. And the husband say, you know, my wife of mine, she, you know, she's so cranky, and if you could get her straightened up. And so what, what happens both, we've got two prideful people in the same room. Nobody wants to admit their faults, their failures, or their contribution to the, whatever's going on in the marriage relationship. And so you go, both get in your bunkers, and you're thinking, well, when they give up, I'll, I'll give in, and when they, she gives up, and back and forth we go. It's pride issues. It's pride that, that um, somebody says to you, you know what, um, you're a very narcissistic person. <laughs> you know what pride says? No, I'm not. Here's the thing about pride. If I, how many of you are prideful? See, the only reason I got one hand, because pride is something we can't see in ourselves. We see it in everybody else. We can't see it in ourselves. So I went up to somebody, and I, I said this to somebody who was attending our church. He asked me honestly. He said, tell me the honest truth. What do you see in me? I said, you are prideful and narcissistic. How do you think he took it? Yeah, no, I'm not. Well, you wanted the truth, right? You know what I mean? We don't really want the truth, do we? Here's the, here's the fifth one. I've got to move on because I only got a couple minutes left. Prejudice. Acts chapter 10. You know, Peter has his great moment and 3,000 people being saved. People are being saved all over the place. All of a sudden, um, now remember, in Peter's day and time, you, you were either Jew or Gentile. If you're Gentile, it's anybody who's not Jewish. So in Peter's mind, the gospel is going to the Jews because Jesus said, take the gospel to the Jews first, and we're going to take it to the Gentiles. Peter's focusing on the Jews. Now it's, turn, you know, it's time to take it to the Gentiles. Peter's not getting that. I mean, he, he, he believed that the Gentiles were unclean people because they didn't follow the law. And so uh, there's a man named Cornelius who God's been dealing with, and he really wants to know the truth about what does it have a relationship with this, this Messiah and so Peter's up on his rooftop, he's praying up there, and all of a sudden God gets his attention, and he says, hey Peter, uh, I want you to go to Cornelius, I got a word for him. And then he drops his sheet down with all these unclean animals, and God says, I want you to get up, kill, and eat. And these are unclean animals, that's against the Jewish law. Peter responds by saying, I've never killed anything, un- I've never eaten anything unclean, I'm not doing that. And so God does that three times, and then the sheet goes away. Then all of a sudden, some guys you know, knock at his door, and the Spirit of God says to him, go answer the door, I have an assignment for you. And they come, and they say, hey, an angel spoke to Cornelius for us to come for, to bring you to him because he's got a lot of questions. Like, he, he's ready to get saved. And so Peter goes. And he has a conversation with Cornelius, and Cornelius and his household is saved and baptized, and the Holy Spirit of God comes down upon Cornelius so that Peter knows as a Jewish man, as a Jewish leader, that yes, the Holy Spirit who indwells you is also going to indwell the Gentiles who will be saved because the gospel is for the entire world, not just for part of it. And so this was like blue. Peter away, like, oh man, I've been so prejudiced. I can't believe I've been so prejudiced. 
Now, he didn't get all the lesson because there's another time he showed his prejudice and then the, Paul had to call him out on it and said, hey, you're being prejudiced against. But he got it that day. Some of you are prejudiced against a lot of things, right? You don't admit it. Some of you are prejudiced against Muslims because you think they're all terrorists. Well, you may have one who lives next to you. Guess what they need? Jesus. I read in the book of Revelation that there will be people from every tribe, every tongue, every language in the kingdom of God. You know, when I grew up, I was taught that everybody who lived in Buckeye Lake was white trash. I was taught that everybody who lived in a trailer park was white trash. Now, I didn't know any better. This is just what I was told. But those who lived in Buckeye Lake and held on to their land and now sell, sold it for a gazillion dollars, they got the last laugh. That's all I know. I come to know people in Buckeye Lake. I discovered they weren't white trash. My sister lived in a trailer park. She was the most kind, generous, giving people who worked with the elderly for her entire life until she died a few months ago. She was anything but white trash. You see, all of us have prejudices, and sometimes God has to root that out of us through the process of, of brokenness. And so he allows hardship, and he allows us to walk through those things, but he walks with us because he's going to do a tremendous work. Number two, God arranges the circumstances we're going we're gonna to just kind of fly through this. The circumstances. Listen, God can engineer circumstances in your life to bring you to brokenness, or he can just allow you to follow your sinful path you're already walking. And you'll get out of it, right? It, it, you know, the Bible says <laughs> that your sin will find you out eventually. And, and this is true, whether you walk with Jesus or not. There are a lot of people who've done horrible things in our world whether it be, you know, involving money or sex trafficking or whatever, who eventually get caught and spend time in prison. Well, even as we as followers of Jesus, our sin will find us out eventually because it always does. You know, we had an individual who attended this church many years ago, a young man, had a wife, a small child, a baby, just like 12 months old maybe or something like that, who had a pornography problem with only it was child pornography, who solicited a minor for sexual uh, prostitution, and here was a sting operation with the Columbus Police Department, and he got caught. What do you think his wife felt when she had no knowledge of any of this? And the police called and say, we've arrested your husband, here's why we've arrested him. See, you think he experienced some brokenness? You think he was broken? He was ashamed? This is the same way with Peter... Oftentimes, our brokenness happens publicly. And so, like Peter, a lot of times his brokenness was public, and he was ashamed, he was broken, he was humiliated, but he was, it was God's method of breaking the hardness of his heart so that God could make it moldable and pliable. Remember, God is the potter, we are the clay. He is the one who arranges the circumstances. Number three, he's the one who chooses the tools the tools by which he's going to mold and shape and fashion our lives. Now, if I were choosing the tool, I would say, God, let me read a book. <laughs> let me listen to a podcast and uh, change me. I don't think it ever, I, I don't know, I've never known it ever to happen that way. Now, I'm not saying you don't benefit from books and podcasts. I'm just saying when God chooses the tool, I don't know what that tool might be for you, but I can tell you it will be sharp. It will be painful, and it will be unavoidable. 
you are going to know God is using something to break you. It might be your enemy. It might be that person who's constantly degrading you, the person you can't stand at work. It might be that person that is always shaming you in some way. I'm not saying that your enemies are right. I'm not saying that you are, you know, you, you sh- neither are, that you know, your irritation against them is unwarranted or unnatural. I'm just simply saying that God has oftentimes in my life used my enemies in order to bring brokenness in some area of my life. God may use your family. It might be your marriage. Nothing brings out in the open our weaknesses, the areas we need to be broken quicker than marriage. I don't know how many of you discovered that in the first year of your marriage. It's a very difficult time because, first couple years actually, because there's so many deficiencies that come to the surface that God needs to work on. Or how about when your kids become teenagers and they notice your faults as as a parent? And they start, like, spelling that out to you. You know, Dad, uh, you know. I asked my daughters one time, I said, well, what, are, what did I do right parenting? What did I do wrong? How long do you think that list of wrong was? As opposed to the right. If you don't want to know, don't ask. I was humble. God controls the pressure. The pressure, the, the, the amount varies from person to person. He's going to set limits on it, how deep it goes, how far it cuts, whether or not he needs to go the pressure greater or lesser, the length of time that it's going to take. If I'm fighting against God, he will lengthen the time. Again, God's not into breaking your spirit, but he can put enough pressure on you to bring you to the place that he needs in order for you to experience breakthrough in your life. And why is God doing all this? Because he is preparing us for our calling. God prepared Peter for that day of Pentecost, a supernatural ministry that required supernatural empowerment. God has put a calling of salvation on your life to receive Christ as your Savior, Lord. God has put a calling of sanctification, to grow in Christ's likeness. God has put a calling of service in your life, but don't ever think that I can serve the Lord just based on my human talents and abilities. It is a supernatural ministry that requires a supernatural empowerment, which means I have to be in in alignment with the fullness of God's will. Now, some of you think that or have this fear, but whoa, but if I say yes to God, he's going to send me to Africa somewhere or some remote country. I, I can't fully surrender to God because, you know, I it's a lie of the enemy, right? What God wants to do is bring healing and freedom in your heart so you can be the best version of you he's created you to be. That's what he wants for you. And if you're sitting here thinking, well, you know, I've gone too far with God. He can't use me. I, I'm far too sinful. I'm far too unworthy. Uh, you know, I've messed up too many times. Listen, Moses killed a guy. You done that? All right, I think you're saved. Even David, a man after God's own heart, had a man killed. Put him on the front lines knowing he was going to die in order to cover up his sin. Listen. There are some things that God hates, but it's not you. God hates sin. 
God hates rebellion. God hates pain and suffering. He hates what evil things does to his children and how the evil things in the world that happen all around us, he hates that stuff, but he does not hate you. He loves you. And God knows that life isn't always fair. Jesus come to understand that life is not always fair. Jesus lived a perfect life. He loved the unlovable. He healed those who were hurting. He cared for the outcast. He touched the untouchables. He did all of those things because of his love for each and every one of us. And it wasn't fair that Roman guards, you know, whipped him and mocked him and beat him and drove stakes into his, his wrists and his heels. It wasn't fair or just that people mocked and ridiculed Jesus while he's on the cross and he's trying to draw a breath and people are saying, well, if you're truly the son of God, how about coming down here and doing something about this? It wasn't fair for Jesus, the sinless lamb of God, to become the sacrifice for our sin, your sin and mine. But listen, this only happened one time and Jesus volunteered for it. And the reason why he volunteered for it is because you are loved by him and he wants a personal relationship with you and if you're thinking well i know why i'm suffering i know uh, god's mad at me god hates me again there are a lot of things that god hates but you're not one of them let's pray together father we we thank you um That you love us, that you care about us, that you're concerned for us. And your love is so deep for us that sometimes we have to experience this temporary pain in our lives, that this brokenness that leads to breakthrough, that leads to transformation, that leads to healing, that leads to freedom. And then ultimately, your blessing, God, you just change us. You just renew us. You, you just make us so different. So, Lord, I thank you that you love us enough to do that, that you, you watch and you see this happen. You see the struggle. You, you hear us crying out to you that I can't do this anymore, and I can't do this on my own. And you hear the cries of our hearts, but, Lord, you are still molding and fashioning us into the image of Jesus and the people who are stronger and with greater faith and less fear and less prejudice and giving up our control issues and God just being molded and into the life of Jesus that we might be powerful and effective just as Peter was and the Apostle Paul was and all the others who were broken. God, you used them in tremendous ways and we pray that for our lives, whether it's within our the context of our families, our jobs, our neighborhoods, our church, our community, around the world. God, may our heart just beat stronger for you. May our love, our passion for you grow deeper and deeper so that we're not just here, but not here. Rather than our minds and our emotions being a thousand different places, that Lord, we are centered in upon you and listening to you and hearing your voice and walking by faith and trusting you, God, to bring beauty out of our ashes. But I pray that over our church today.
and for every person that is here. God, do a work in us before we leave here today. It's my prayer in the name of Jesus.